The thoughts, views, and opinions expressed in this episode does not completely reflect the thoughts, views, and opinions of St. Louis Story Stitchers. Stop and take a trip down on my block on. where you see hidden potential, young minds sharper than pencil, Light. and ain't afraid to speak their mind if they got something against you. Nope. We standing with you, we tackle issues like civic pride. Hate will cease to exist, let's put our differences aside. From my side to your side, from Dutch Town to South Side, from Penrose to North Side, from Benton Park to Old North, the West End, the West Side. We bless when we step out, we stand down, rise up, stand together, wise up. This is Stitchcast Studio, produced by St. Louis Story Stitchers in St. Louis, Missouri. This is Stitchcast Studio Live, featuring our special guest, Siraj Gorman, poet and activist. This is the final part of a three-part series, the trauma of losing a loved one to gun violence, as well as the recent school shootings in St. Louis, Missouri. Check it out. They say who that, but you already knew that. That beat them Story Stitchers. Story Stitchers, Story Stitchers, Story Stitchers, Story Stitchers. Do you work, do you have the capacity to work with people who deal with traumatized populations, right? And she was like, talk to me a bit more about your work. And then when I told her what I did, she's like, oh yeah. And then she showed me proof. She gave me case studies, right? But I not only needed her in a professional capacity, I needed her in a personal capacity because she asked a very important question. She was like, what made you go into your work? I was like, I'm glad you asked, right? But that was also a cue for me that she was the right person. Because then when she understood how close to home it was for me, like there is no degree of separation between what I've gone through in my personal life and my work. When she understood that, it was like, okay, you still got some self-work to do. Because I tell people, I've, I've been very open and honest about my grieving process over losing. I lost, I've lost four of my siblings and I'm now my parents' only living child. And I'm the middle girl, you know, I'm the middle child. So I've always, and if you understand things about birth order, the the middle child's always like the independent one because it's like you had the, the older sibling that just, they're, they're the first. And then you got the baby, right? And so I was always kind of like the really active, independent one and that whole bit. And, you know, coming into this new reality of where I'm like, oh my God, I don't have my brothers. This is deep. And my sister's gone. My sister passed away from pancreatic cancer in 2017. And it's like, oh my God, but what does this mean? It's like, oh, it's me. Like my parents, like all of that, our parents are aging. What does that look like? You know, and I have my nieces and nephews, but I've had to do some really serious negotiating with myself. And what I mean by that is like, I'm still gonna be me. I'm still gonna be me, but how do I be me without my brothers? And I'm like, I don't have to be without them. My brothers are ever present. They always make themselves known, always. Especially my brother who just recently passed away in November unexpectedly. And I have to trust that, but I would not be honest 
if I said to you all right now that it is not challenging. So it is it is a lot to manage, but that's part of grieving as well. And when we look at the five stages of grief, right? Where it's like you have your disbelief, your anger, your bargaining, your um, acceptance. And it's one more that I'm missing that I always miss. Yeah, depression, right? I find myself feeling all those, all five at the same time. And then at times I'm leaning more into the disbelief of it all. <laughs> and the acceptance at the same time. I know that sounds kind of mm. like that's a weird juxtaposition to I lean into. Like yeah. And it's like, but no, sometimes I'm like, no, I accept. I'm very clear, right? That people who I love and still need, it's different now. They're different now. I'm different now. But what does that different look like for me in the living? Right? And I, I have a tendency to really see people managing all of these different stages because grief is not linear, right? Some people look at the five stages of grief and they're like, okay, I'm done with the acceptance part. I think I'm going to be done with anger in about three weeks. Then I can move over into depression and bargain. It don't work that way. I'll be over this in like about two, three weeks. Like then I'll be good. And it's like, but it's, it's not, it's not that. It's a journey. It's a journey. But getting back to your point about therapeutic relationships, I feel like my journey is a lot better because of my therapist. Now we have a blueprint to, we have a, well, we have a direction to work from, right? We have something we can build a blueprint from to go ahead and, and assist with. And I'm curious now that I've said that, and I want to hear from y'all, what do you think would be a healthy blueprint moving forward from, you know, the shooting at VAP? Oof. I don't know. I think a blueprint is always kind of rough because like you said, it's it's not linear. It's not linear. And I think I've read that with the five stages of grief, some people skip steps, some people, you know, be in one step for, for super long and then get through the rest of them real quick. You know what I'm saying? So it's, it's so... And what I tell people, you're going to go through all five stages. Mm -hmm. Just don't build a house right. in yeah. one of them. Don't Absolutely. build a house in anger. Stay there, visit it. You might have a little vacation up in it, yeah. but don't build a house in that stage, any of the stages, right? If I had to uh, map out a, a rough blueprint, I would say that when you're going through the stages of grief or whatever the case may be, it's really important to have healthy relationships with people and to surround yourself with people that love you. You know what I'm saying? And I think it and this part may take a little bit more self-awareness than than other people than than a lot of people may have. But like like I believe in having like different types of friends. You know what I'm saying? Like like I have my honest friends that I love to death. Unfortunately everybody ain't as honest as them. And, and when I when I say that, I don't mean that like people just go out here lying, but some people have a hard time 
telling you things that are unpleasant to say and unpleasant to hear. You know what I'm saying? Unlike that, so that's what I mean when I when I refer to my honest friends. They're gonna tell me the truth regardless of whether or not it's pleasant to say, regardless of whether or not it's pleasant to hear. Um, so I think you need different types of friends. You need I think you need friends that know how to have a good time too. You know what I'm saying? You need you need uh to me, I gotta have some spiritual friends. You know what I'm saying? And I think you should be self-aware enough to know what place you're in so that you know which friends you need at that specific moment. You know what I'm saying? So like I got I'm a I'm I'm a uh, Christian, not 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 in the uh traditional sense, I would say uh, only because a lot of traditional Christian beliefs I don't exactly align with. But that being said, I could say that as a Christian, I have friends that are, that are atheists. And so if I'm having a crisis of faith or something like that, I know I'm not about to go to my atheist friends to talk about that. You know what I'm saying? So yeah, so, so, so you should be self-aware enough to know like, okay, right now I'm in too fragile of a place to chill with these friends right now. You know what I'm saying? So you, you have to be able to know what place you're in. And like I said, surround yourself with people that love you and that's that don't oversimplify it because somebody that loves you that has good intentions, like 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 the uh person that, that remained nameless that you brought up when you when you decided to go hang out, I'm almost certain, even though I know very little about the situation, I'm almost certain that their intention wasn't to bring you into a bad place. You know what I'm saying? So people that love you can still harm you in ways, you know what I'm saying? Which is why you have to be, you know what I'm saying? And give yourself permission to to grieve and to be angry and all of that. You'd be surprised at how like how loose somebody feels when you say, yo, first of all, if you're angry, it's okay to be angry. If you're confused, it's okay to be confused. If you're sad, it's okay to be, you're justified to feel whatever it is that you want to feel. You know what I'm saying? And uh, so if I had to break it down, surround yourself with people that love you. Know what place you're in in life so you know which friends to listen to at what moment. And allow yourself to feel whatever it is that you're feeling. I agree, don't build a house in it, don't stay there because that's unhealthy. But acknowledge that you feel that way and give yourself permission to feel that way. You know what I'm saying? And grief don't escape nobody. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Ain't nobody finna go through life without experiencing some sort of grief. So, you know what I'm recognize that it's a process. Don't try to skip it. Don't try to don't try to numb it for too long. You know what I'm saying? Allow yourself to go through that process. Like I said, I didn't in these past couple of weeks, I didn't I didn't I didn't cry more in these past couple of weeks than I've cried in the last few years. You know what I'm saying? Easily. Easily. Like it's not even close. And it is what it is. You know what I'm saying? I wake up feeling a little better. I wake up feeling a little better. Um the next day than I did the last. Some days I wake up and it feel like everything is completely fresh. Like it just hit me. Other days I wake up like, yo, I'm going to get through this. I know I'm going to get through this. You know what I'm saying? So you're going to have those ups and downs because like you said, it's not linear. You're going to have those ups and downs. So so allow yourself to go through those processes and understand and recognize that there is no skipping the process. You know what I'm saying? There is no none of that. All you can do is allow yourself to go through it because that's the only way to get through it. You know what I'm saying? The only way through it is through it. So, so yeah, so that would be my blueprint if I had to make one. I want to piggyback off what you said and then another thing just to add 
it's okay not to understand your emotions. Like we all had that one feeling where you just don't know what to feel. Like you can't describe it, can't explain it. It's just a like a weird mood you just in, and it's like hard to try to make other people explain, like understand like where you're coming from. You don't really have to like explain yourself. It's just something you're gonna feel till you get through it. Yeah, you know what? You just said something so important because for myself as a word person, at one point in my life, I was always attempting to articulate how I felt and what I was feeling. The most powerful moment in my life is when I surrendered to the fact that, and same homegirl, my homegirl Aziza, she was like, how are you feeling? I said, I absolutely don't know. I don't know. And I, I'm i okay with that. I'm like, I'm a little freaked out about it because I can't name it. And I'm used to naming things. Because for me, if I can name it, I can go, yeah. And it was such a beautiful moment when I was like, especially with a dear friend. Because, and once again, when I was talking about identity earlier, I had to shed my part of my identity as being that person where I know what I'm doing, I know where I'm going, I'm very clear, and to be vulnerable like that with a dear friend, I was like, man, this is a weight that I don't even need to carry no more. Cause knock knock human, guess what? You human. How about that? <laughs> And I just remember being like, I don't know how I feel and I'm okay with that. And hearing it come out my mouth and feeling where it landed in my body, like even my body felt different. It was like, yeah, we ain't gotta have this figured out. And so what? It's gonna be all right. Because one day we might wake up and we might be able to name how we feel. <laughs> we might be able to articulate it, right? So what you just said is so powerful because at times we do push people to name and we'll try and put words in people's mouths, right? Like, are you mad? Are you sad? Or, you know, it just what's going on? And once again, that fixer archetype, right? People come in and we want to fix it. And it's like, you can't. Sometimes you just can't. You just got to be. We got to let silence be and go from there. So thank you for that. That 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 brings me back to something that Dr. Punch said at our Saturday event. And you, you all right, so y'all know y'all know uh pe people call it fight or flight. Uh Dr. Punch always says that the most common, um, the most common option is one that people don't even name, which is freeze. So it's flight, fight, flight, or freeze. But Punch also mentioned another trauma response that we have, and that's trying to control everything after it happens. Uh, Punch said, we could feel guilt, we could feel ashamed, we could feel angry, and we can try to control everything. And I'm, I'm not gonna cap, I think I got that bad. You that's, do. That's one of them guys that I got You do, bad. but it's good though. You mentioned, when you mentioned going straight into strategy mode, that's one of the things that came to mind. That like, yo, that's a trauma response. That That's, that's, a, that's another trauma response, trying to control everything. And uh, how we talk about like like how the mind tries to like make sense of things that make no sense whatsoever. I think 
it's kind of the same thing. You know what I'm saying? If I if I could make this make sense, if I could add some logic to this, provide some reasoning to it, then it makes me feel more in control than if I'm just completely in the dark about it. Well, I'll give you a little more insight on what I was thinking in that moment. Because I literally talked it out to my mother. I said, when I hang up with you, I'm going to call Reverend Kennedy. See if Reverend Kennedy knows. If Reverend Kennedy does not know, we're going to have a conversation about what does it mean to put the community chaplaincy project in action in this moment. And then I also delegate, I'm like literally talking all of it out to my mom. And I'm like, and then I'm just going to have Reverend Kennedy delegate to the Black Killers Collective because we need all hands on deck. I was like, then I'm going to call Dr. Punch because I got to know what we're going to have to do at the clinic for today. What is going to be our goal? And my mother said, that sounds like a good plan. I said, okay, I'll give you a call back. I love you. So for me, it wasn't necessarily about control. It was about how do we lessen the damage? I'll say that again. How do we lessen the damage? Because there's no getting rid of it. There's no changing it. This train is moving. So... What do we do to mitigate some of this energy? So that was my initial thinking. What do we have to do in three months? What do we have to do in the immediate? But three months, six months, 12 months, 24 months. I was very transparent with people where I was like, if you're not talking about a plan that takes us almost into two years, I do not want to seat at your table. This is a long game. And part of that, pardon me, part of that came from my lived experience. And that's where the value in having lived experience, sadly enough, when you have lived experience and very traumatic things, it's a switch you can flip where you can start referencing everything that you experienced, everything that everybody else around you experienced, and you can take that as learning and say, okay, I know what things looked like in three months, what it looked like in six, what it looked like in 12, what it looked like in 24. So what do we need to have in place? Because I've seen this, I've lived it. I've seen other people go through it. And I've seen where if you can, if you get the right people around you at the right time, had I not had that conversation with my homeboy Kenny within the first month, of my brother passing, I shudder to think where I would be mentally. And actually, I'll reel it back because I've, I've talked about this openly. When I flew in from New York when my brother was killed and I came to my mother's house and when my mother opened the door, I collapsed in her arms. And I couldn't take hearing all the conversations, so I went upstairs in my mother's bedroom. I didn't go up there alone. I took a knife with me. I have never been a cutter. Like some people have their opinions about tattoos. I'm heavily tattooed. I make no apology for that. But some people look at tattoos as being like, oh, that's a form of mutilating yourself and that whole bit. And some of that is true, right? Because based on the type of trauma you've been through in your life, a tattoo can be very releasing and cathartic, right? So, I'm not saying that that's not a thing. 
But I just know for me, my tattoos have always been something where it's been more generative than me trying to detach myself from some sort of pain, right? And engage in a self-harm practice that then is something beautiful on the body. No, I went upstairs with one of my mama's good knives and I was contemplating cutting myself. Never had a thought like that ever before in my life. And then I just could not think of where to cut myself without explaining myself. Because there's a TEDx talk that you all can watch that I did where I'm very transparent about it. I was like, I had three points of criteria where my doctor, my tattoo artist, or my lover wouldn't question me about the scars. But I couldn't find anywhere on my body that I could cut myself where those three people wouldn't have questions like, wait, what's what's this? Mm-hmm. House cleared out. Finally, it was just me and my mom in the house, finally quiet. And I went downstairs and I just stood next to my mom and she was sitting down and I said, you know what? I was just upstairs contemplating cutting myself. She said, that won't let the pain out. My, and Cause I couldn't even understand why I was getting ready to do it. My mother named it immediately. So had I not had certain people around me saying certain things around me and also allowing me to do certain things because my mother and them did not shy away from the fact that I go into work mode, right? My brother's repast basically was like a community healing space. We had BHR there. We had healing artists there. They made this beautiful art wall. We got people into care, all sorts of stuff. Because I looked at it like this just didn't happen to my family. This happened to his friends. This happened to our community. This happened to everybody who loved my brother and loved us. So we got to have things in place in order to meet that need. So when I got wind of that shooting that morning, my mind went right back to what did you do after your brother was killed? What did you knew, what did you know needed to happen in order to take care of people? Because I was like, there ain't no fixing this. We just gotta do whatever we can to lessen the harm. Cause the harm is done. But how can we prevent people from having nightmares or to lessen the amount of nightmares that they're going to have or insomnia? Just you name it, y'all. Whatever. Hey, everybody, you know what time it is. It's time for our Pick the City Up art interlude featuring an original piece by Story Stitches Artist Collective. Check it out. From the rapture that them Chuck Taters was ushering in a social disaster. Uh, we died faster in them court. 
Cortez But once some J's popped off Inevitably there was more dead Could never see me in no poor kids Or no pro wings to the first of 15 We came so clean Hustle for bread and some crispy air forces Black and blue air maxes in the veal where we sport Can I kick it? It's the sneak attack Can I kick it? It's the sneak attack Can I kick it? It's the sneak attack Over shots that rang out yesterday Mama say until we get the bread to get a better place We gotta pray for better days You just a step away from somebody taking your breath away That was her warning like every morning Open the closet, reach for the Jordans Oh yeah, we can't afford them So I strap up the sketches and let her finish her lecture This the first day of school, can't believe I gotta wear this I'm out the door, at the bus stop I see a couple dudes I knew was out before It don't look like they out no more They in the game, they trying to get paid They might drop out of 10th grade By the time the bus came, they paid 10 ways Stay out here chasing money, they got the shoes plus the bread plus the tool case somebody trying to take it from them they look at me and they like what are those oh now these my other clothes the force is still at home i rock them later on can i kick it it's the sneak attack can i kick it it's the sneak attack can i kick it it's the sneak attack got soul in your soul what are those can i kick it it's the sneak attack can i kick it it's the sneak attack can i kick it it's the sneak attack got soul in your soul what are me in my summer clothes. I love that watch. I got to cop me one of those. Buses here, I gotta go. What are those? I don't even know. I'm on the need to know, and they don't even need to know that these my brother clothes. Hope they don't take it wrong, but we don't live forever. Life ain't long. It's even shorter on that corner they be standing on. Be taking chances on it, they be planning on. Cause Lord knows I'm probably still gonna Yo. see him standing Yo. up when I get home. You somersaults and turn cartwheels to get a deal. Not when you were real. One from bacon by way of the bill. My soul is not for sale. Don't need no more celebrity. Pay me so all of us can eat. You know I'm dope. That'll be. You take no losses or no shorts. Kevin Hart like a dwarf playing Lambo. And no, it's not no demo. Uh-huh. Skip a choice, strike a match, just blaze. Many men have tried, but I was Yo, made this way. Can I kick it? It's the sneak attack. Can I kick it? It's the sneak attack. Can I kick it? It's the sneak attack. couple questions i got uh the first one is uh what made your mother so aware to, <laughs> to like to like know exactly what to say when you like 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 i i can i can only imagine that most parents wouldn't even know how to respond to that to that child telling them that they that they that they were thinking about cutting themselves especially when already in such a you know traumatic uh situation so what what made her so aware I think it's just who my mother is. Like my parents are pretty dope and just, yeah, like extremely insightful people, very human people, (laughs) Um, very spiritually grounded folk. And sometimes I still wonder to this day how my mother was able to like hone in on it with such precision. And, but the only answer I have for that for real, for real is like, a lot of parents know their children very well. Like even though I hadn't lived in St. Louis at that time for almost 12 years, I'm still my mother's child. And my mother had never heard me talk like that. 
So I think for her, perhaps what happened is that she knew that I was in so much pain that I didn't want people to physically see it. I'd rather just try and take it to myself and try and get it to come out of me. Because I was one of the people in my family. I didn't learn how to cry until I was 25 years old. I have a theory around that. I think part of it was because I, I had so many brothers and I have so many, you know, guy cousins that I was born in the middle of all of that. So I kind of got socialized like one of the boys. It's like, you ain't hurt, stop crying. You know what I'm saying? Like how many of us have heard that, right? But here it is, you know, I'm a girl child and I'm hearing that and I'm thinking that that's the way that I'm also supposed to be, not knowing that that was specifically messaging for the boys. But I did everything that they did, like, you know, bike tricks and making tree houses and climbing trees and fences and all of that. So that messaging still got through to me. So when my mother, I think it probably hit my mom as soon as I collapsed in her arms when I walked through the door. I've never done that. Not, not to that point in my life. I barely cried. So I think that maternal instinct in my mother probably hit and was like, my baby is in pain and she's gonna do anything for others not to see it. So yeah. Wow. It's dope that you refer to your parents as dope too. I love it. I love it. Yeah, I appreciate them. Like we we have our moments, we butt heads like all children do with their parents, you know. Um, like yeah, I I would not be who I am without the parents that I have. And I mean, I'm the child of an incarcerated parent. My father's been locked up the majority of my life. But my daddy has always been an active dad. My mother always saw to it that every Sunday we went and visited him. We did homework together. Like, them calls was serious. It's like, nope. My father would send me packets. I always tell people, y'all yeah, went to public school, but I was also homeschooled because my dad was not having it. I was one of those kids in like third, fourth grade, people trying to drink Coca-Cola. I was like, my parents said I cannot drink Coca-Cola because they support apartheid. And they were like, what? Hey, yo. <laughs> and that has a lot to do with my father. Just, you know, he never relinquished his responsibility as a dad because he was incarcerated. And he always felt that it was his duty to keep me informed of certain things. Um, so yeah, now I appreciate my parents a lot. I mean, I just saw my dad, um, cause where he's incarcerated, they actually let him out to come to my brother's grave. Cause my brother and his, his mother are buried in the same grave together. And I was able to bring my brother Theo's urn. And we sat together for like two hours, just in the graveyard and talked about everything. And my dad is like, I'm proud of you. Mama's proud of you. John is proud of you. Like, so my, I, I'm just a firm believer, no matter how old you get, you always gonna be your parents' babies regardless, but for my father to see, and my mom, to see me go into a certain facet of my life, be very vulnerable about it, 
and choose to keep going and, and to my father just be like, I'm proud of you. Like, I'm proud of the woman that you are. That means a lot. I don't care how old I am. <laughs> it's just like, you know, everybody wants to hear that, you know, from their parents. So, yeah, so my dad is just super, super dope. He's human. My mother's human. Like I said, we have our, our rubs and our challenges. But, yeah, I would not be who I am without them. Even the line of work that I do. I mean, it was also my father saying in the wake of my brother being killed, he said, one died so many could live. He said, it is our responsibility to now to make sure that that young lady and her children are okay because your brother gave his life. This is village. We are now responsible. So, and I mean, this is within hours of my brother being gone. My parents having very specific ways on how they approached it. Because as my mother said, if God could hang Jesus on a cross, what makes mine any different? Mm -hmm. So for me, having parents that put things into perspective, not make sense of it, but put things in a perspective that made me go, okay, I can, I can do this that basically saved my life. It didn't stop the grief. No, not at all. But them having certain words on the ready that they believed, because those were not cliche sayings. My parents meant both of the things that they said with every fiber of their being, right? and them operating with that much conviction within hours of my brother passing. I was like, okay. But they also know their child. They know that I'm a very logical person. They know that I need, I need conversation about things. And my parents don't shy away from that. So getting that, my parents understanding how I process my emotions and things that are happening. That's why I had to talk things out and it didn't even click to me that I'm literally talking out the plan to my mother and then her saying, that is a good plan. I'm getting off the phone, call Reverend Kennedy, call Dr. Punch. I'll see you when I get home. I love you, you know? Not judging me for it. Being like, why are you thinking about that? Like right now, like, no. So, um, you, earlier you you mentioned how um being a fixer is tied to ego, and it's something that I've suspected, but that I didn't really quite explore. You know what I'm saying? And, and you saying it kind of confirmed it for me, cause cause I'm a fixer, and sometimes I do wonder like, yo, am I am I working this hard to fix this? For me, like, 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 is it really about me? You know, or do it, do it, do I like, do I, is there something in me that like, I need people to need me, you know what I'm saying? Or do I attach my worth to how much I can do for other people, you know what I'm saying? And, and all of that, regardless of how good the intention is, at its core, it's still ego. So could you, could you expound on how you, how you got to that place? 
But I also think that it is a social expectation mm -hmm. that we have. And I'll use this example. It's this whole notion of you're not a complete human being until you do for others, right? And I don't know what came first, the chicken or the egg in this situation. Because is it just a natural, innate thing in human beings to want to assist and help one another? Or does it come from a theological and doctrinal expectation of us to say to be in God's favor, you must be of service to others? And then that places this looming kind of guilt over us. But then you have this thing called the ego that has, for me, has gotten exacerbated lately with social media, where it's like, look at me, pay attention to me. And somebody described it as clout chasing um, earlier, um, where young people have given us a new language for people who are like in corporate America and like at these nonprofits where it's like, look at me helping these people, <laughs> right? Not realizing that that's like clout chasing and ego and all of that before we had that in our lexicon, right? So that was really interesting. That was a really interesting conversation over breakfast this morning because a lot of my friends are still in the ad industry and work with clients and stuff like that. And they're like, man, this feels like clout chasing. Like they're only doing this because they can pat themselves on the back and be like, we gave $10 million to this inner city program and we get to go take pictures with these kids, but you don't employ them after they get out of your program. Uh, Dr. Punch said at Saturday's event that mm -hmm. artists are the guardians of our mental health. Mm -hmm. And that the um, fact that the shooting took place at a performing arts school made it even more offensive. Not that other schools don't matter as much, but because artists create the escapes or the, uh, or the um, I'll call it assisted assistance entertainment that people use artists create the forums that people go to when they a want to escape from the realities of life or b need assistance in dealing with the realities of life you know so like like you know what i'm saying when you when you when you when you're heartbroken you listen to heartbreak songs you know what i'm saying if you, if you lost somebody you listen to, to to the songs that were created to get people through those type of experiences and whatnot so I would say the same thing I said in the news interview, which is as an artist, when you when you when you when you grieving or when you when you going through what you're going through, express yourself through your art, because people that aren't artists are more often than not not as able to express themselves as well as you can. So when they hear that song or see that painting or read that book or see that movie that has everything that they needed to hear to let them know that they weren't alone and that they can get through what they what they're going through you did your job as an artist and so if you're an artist i would say do your job yeah and then another important thing about art that we don't pay attention to 
is that especially those of us who are poets as well as photographers, we're record keepers, we're archivists. And when people want to give a certain narrative, we can actually give a more accurate picture through our photographs, through what we've written and what we've observed. I mean, visual artists have, a, you know, painters and stuff like that. And people who do sculpture have the tendency to be this, do the same thing. But being an artist myself and being a poet basically my entire life <laughs> and a photographer as well as a documentarian, the urgency of now demands that we step up and do proper record keeping, that we do proper capturing of the history as it is happening. Because this is the fascinating thing about some of the poets that I love, like James Baldwin and June Jordan and Nikki Giovanni, like they name poems after people. They name poems after events. And what somebody could write a dissertation on, they didn't written it out in a poem, right? And you will be just as clear about that historical event from that poem as you were from somebody investing years in writing chapters <laughs> for a PhD dissertation, right? So for me, that's really the importance of art and moments like these and just in, in, in our times in general, because we are living in some very precarious times right now where this whole thing of the truth versus what's the term that folks have started to use, which is like alternative facts. <laughs> yeah and it's like yeah but the whole notion that people have this term called alternative facts that has now entered our lexicon as of like what five six years ago that's scary because in my whole time growing up there were there was fact and there was fiction <laughs> right but then now we have this kind of weird space that is quite delusional. And it's troubling because some people hold on to that as if it is fact. It's virtual. Yeah. It's virtual. But it's it, really but it has a but it has a viral quality to it. Are we talking about the metaverse? <laughs> that too. But but just the but not even going so far as to the metaverse, because I can't even talk about the metaverse. I don't know anything about it. However, when we start looking at news, and I just remember having a shudder in my bones, because, you know, I watch Fox sometimes just because I need to know what's being spread, right? And the first time I heard somebody say alternative facts, I was like, are we in trouble? Because they keep saying this as if it is a thing. Like there is, you have fact and you have fiction. 
what is this alternative facts thing? And now people say it like it's it, it's true, right? And it, so yeah, it is it's absolutely troubling because if people, as the old saying go, if somebody tells a lie enough, it becomes the truth, right? And we have to resist against that. And that's where artists come into play, is that we have always been, must always be counterculture. We always been and have to be, especially playwrights. We have to be the ones who are the mirror. And to place it back in front of us. And to say, you like what you see? Like what this is? Is this who we are? I was saying you could. I feel like you can apply that to songs. I know we gotta wrap up and we're about to do that, but I, I like you can apply that to songs or any form of art. You know what I'm saying, and I've never even thought about like how important the responsibility is, not 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 just of the, of of creating things that help people, but like of 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 being truthful, of being the one that that, that says like, yo, I, I know I know y'all trying to sugarcoat it and all of that, but this is what's actually going on. I'm so glad we had this conversation. Um, ladies and gentlemen, everybody under the sound of my voice, I hope you found this um, insightful. I hope you've walked away with a gem or two. Um, we didn't we didn't laugh together and cried together and all type of stuff in this last three hours. So we hope that you found something that you find useful and something that you can use to make yourself better or the people better around you. That being said, I'm your host, Brandon Lewis. There are too many people to sit around here and name. Thank you, Ms. Shiraz Gorman, for coming in. And we out. Thank you for listening. And last but not least, we want to give a very special shout out to the Stitchcast Studio sponsors. Stitchcast Studio Season 2 in 2021 is sponsored by the Spirit of St. Louis Women's Fund three-year grant from 2020 to 2022. Arts and Education Council, PNC Grant, and Lush Corporations, the Charity Pot. Peace in the Prairie is presented with support from Missouri Arts Council, a state agency, which receives support from the state of Missouri and the National Endowment for Arts. Additional support is provided by the Spirit of St. Louis Women's Fund, Missouri Foundation for Health, City of St. Louis Youth at Risk Crime Prevention Grant of 2020, Stewart Family Foundation, and Kranzberg Arts Foundation. You already knew that that beat them story stitches, story stitches, story stitches, story stitches, story stitches.